0: You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Um, So today we're going to be talking about pigmentation pearls. So we'll go ahead and get started. Um, And so I started with this um, because we're going to be talking about periorbital hyperpigmentation. And I actually think this is so true. My dark circles are starting to be bigger than my friend's circle. So. (laughs) <laughs> periorbital um, orbital hyperpigmentation is a very common complaint that you'll find in skin of color populations. Um, it's frustrating because it's multi it, you know, the cause is multi- multifactorial. Um, and so there isn't any one treatment that's going to be effective for this group of patients. So when you think about periorbital hyperpigmentation, there are a lot of different causes. Um, they talk about constitutional causes, so basically, just it's genetic. This is kind of what your I- eyelid skin is you know designed to do. Um, you can also have post-inflammatory hyper. Hyperpigmentation as a result of, for instance, atopic dermatitis, um, and then in that case, you may look or find that Denny Morgan lines are present. Um, it may be a vascular issue. So in this type of kind of under-eye hyperpigmentation, um, there is a usually a, a combination of thinness of the skin in that area, in addition to kind of increased dermal vascularity. So in this patient, you might find a little bit of a blue hue. You may actually be able to see some of the vascularity under the skin. Um, and then there's also this shadow um, um, effect, where there is an appearance of a dark shadow because there is a presence of a deep tier, um, tear trough. So there may be some loss of that under eye um, uh, subcutaneous or uh, fat that's there. So, One thing that you can do to try to differentiate these different um, types of um, periorbital hyperpigmentation is is something called the stretch test. And essentially in this test, what you do is you take the under eyelid skin and you stretch it. Um, And the idea is that if it improves or if the um, discoloration improves, um, it usually means that this uh, kind of discoloration is due to a shadow. Um, And so filling in that density with fillers uh, or doing a fat transfer may be helpful. Um, If it worsens, that usually means that it's due to like increase vascularity, and in because you're, again, causing that, you're making those vessels that are underlying more prominent. Um, and if there's no change, it may just be regular pigmentation. So it can be constitutional, or it could be post-inflammatory in that situation. And so um, when patients come in with, the, um, with complaints of dark under eye circles, usually what I recommend is, well I tell them specifically that unfortunately a lot of the treatments that we have aren't that great, but that what we'll do is try to target each of these um, if it applies to them specifically. Um, so treating the underlying issue, if somebody has atopic dermatitis or eyelid dermatitis, treating that appropriately so that the post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation can improve. Um, if they have volume loss, recommending fillers or doing um, fat transfers, sometimes i'll refer these people to under um to oculoplastics for surgery if they have enough volume loss um, because that is one way to actually improve that um, that hyperpigmentation or the appearance of hyperpigmentation Um, behavioral modification simple things so if you have dark under eye circles because you're not sleeping enough sleep more which sounds very easy but you know that most of us probably don't sleep enough um, and then using, the, um, using creams such as hydroquinone or kojic acid, um, some of these lightning creams to try to um, improve some of the hyperpigmentation that um, is present. We will talk a little bit about some of these creams in detail a little bit later. Okay? Um, and then you can do things like peels and lasers um, if that is something that you do in your practice. So um, vitiligo is another pigmentary um, disorder that we see very commonly in skin of color um, patients. Um, interestingly, there isn't a racial, um, ethnic, or socioeconomic predilection, but because of the difference in the skin tone, we find a, we seem to see these patients more frequently. Um, we've all seen it. You know, you see these asymptomatic, kind of well-demarcated, um, depigmented patches of skin. Um, occasionally, there is some inflammation, but usually not. Um, common areas of involvement on the body include the face- um, but areas of trauma are also very common. So you will see it on the elbows, on the hands, on the feet, on the knees. Um, patients may also have depigmented hairs in areas of involvement, and that was called poliosis. Um, that is sometimes a, a, an important sign to look for because areas that have poliosis sometimes don't respond as well to treatment, um, oftentimes, because a lot of times when we're trying to get that pigment to come back in areas of involvement, you're trying to get the depot of pigment cells um, from the hair follicle. And so if you don't have any pigment in the hair follicle, you may not be able to get some of that pigment back. We talked about some of the classifications. So the classifications are just based on whether um, where it's located on the body and also the um, appearance of it. And I have some pictures of that. So when they talk about kind of trichrome or kind of quadrichrome um, vitiligo, it really just refers to the fact that there are multiple colors of skin. So there's the patient's natural skin tone, as well as the, the completely depigmented de- skin. But then there is this transition zone where you have kind of like this mid kind of color. Um, for quadrochrome. Chrome, usually, the last color that comes up is this perifollicular kind of hyperpigmentation that occurs once uh, repigmentation is occurring. Um, segmental is just when it happens in a segmental fashion, and then there's this um, variant called vitiligo 2 I don't speak French. I'm positive that I'm, I'm not saying that appropriately, but um, that's how I say it. Um, but this is more of this kind of confetti macule appearance, um, where you're finding that patients, instead of developing these like wider patches of depigmentation, they have these very kind of focal areas of depigmentation. Um, and then we talked about the poliosis, this idea where you have depigmentation of the hairs, and sometimes this can be a, a sign that um, the pigmentation won't come back as easily. So diagnosis, um, diagnosis is done by um, sometimes just looking at it clinically. But if there's usually in darker skin patients, there's not a doubt of the diagnosis. Um, but in lighter skin um, uh, patients, it may be more difficult to see the depigmentation. So Woods lamp can be very um, helpful in kind of illuminating these areas of depigmentation, as you can see. So um, treatment, um, when I think about treatment and management, um, typically people talk about topical steroids being first line, or at least it's been first line for many, many decades for as long as vitiligo has been treated. Um, when I do topical steroids, I tend to do uh, uh, class one topical steroids. Um, and I do that because I don't find, so I don't actually find that topical steroids work that well generally, I'll be honest. Um, but when I do co- on topical steroids, I prefer to do um, class one topical steroids, um, and I do it for longer periods of time. So people have this, this uh, kind of fear of using to- a class 1 topical steroids because you're afraid of the risk of atrophy. You're afraid of the risk of, well, not into vitiligo, but the risk of hypopigmentation. But really, if you're going to treat vitiligo, you should be using a class 1 or class 2 topical steroid, so something like cl- um, clobetazole, halobetazole. And my re- my regimen that I usually use is doing it twice daily for about 2 or 3 weeks and then having them take a break where they're just using on the weekends for 2 weeks and then repeating this 3 weeks on, 2 weeks weeks just on weekends, three weeks on, two weeks just on weekends for months to see whether you're going to see an improvement. Um, And the way that you're going to see that uh, improvement is you're going to see that kind of perifollicular um, pigment coming back. And I do have a picture of that. Um, I, in my practice, usually like to use um, phototherapy. I find that phototherapy with narrowband UVB tends to be one of the more effective ways of treating vitiligo in a lot of patients. Um, And you may have to do it for months or sometimes up to a year. So I usually have, I do, when I write the prescription for the patients, I have them do it um, two, to time, two to three times per week, and then we do, we do a reevaluation at three months. And again, what you're looking for is this kind of perifollicular repigmentation. Um, I always say with these types of patients, and honestly it's dermatology with a lot of patients, it's helpful to take pictures because sometimes it's not it's harder to kind of gauge whether things are improving. So I take pictures throughout their course so that we can compare because one thing that I will say with narrowband UVB, if you have it, if you if it works for a patient, is that patients won't want to stop. So I'll have patients who are like, well, if I stop what's gonna happen. And the truth is is that sometimes when these patients stop, you do have some recurrence of the disease. But at least if you've taken pictures, you can have them take a break and then you can really gauge whether or not those areas are worsening. Um, I have here highlighted um, protopic and um, uh, elidel or permacrolimus and tacrolimus. I really like this for facial and genital, genital disease. I find that this works very well in those areas of involvement for some patients. Um, and so usually what I'll do is have them, um, if they have genital disease or if they have facial disease, instead of using a topical steroid because you can't use a you know, cost one in those areas, I have them do the um, topical tacrolimus or permacrolimus um, twice a day. The main um, issue that some patients will have is tolerance, The protopic is a little bit greasy, so sometimes I'll have them just use it at nighttime. And then some patients do have burning, which um, if they have that, that that will sometimes get better with um, repeated applications, but occasionally some patients are unable to tolerate it because of that. Um, And then the last thing that I have here um, is depigmentation, which we'll talk about in a minute. But as I said, here switch to this. You can see these areas of repigmentation that come in. So usually repigmentation that occurs comes in from the outside in and also perifollicularly. So that's why I was saying that in in patients with uh, issues with poliosis, you may not be able to get that kind of um, repigmentation. In addition, repigmentation usually is more resistant in areas of trauma. So hands don't always repigment as well. Feet and ankles don't always every pigment as well, either. And we talked about this. So depigmentation is something that people don't typically think about as a treatment for vitiligo, but it definitely can be something that you can keep in your kind of um, a bag of uh, kind of options. Um, so with depigmentation, um, I always like to say you want to establish a percentage of loss. I usually don't consider depigmentation un- unless somebody has at least 80 to 90% involvement, because and has failed treatment. Um, because at that point, if somebody has failed, kind of other treatment options, and they have that level of um, depigmentation Pigmentation, your chance of getting them to repigment is actually fairly low. Um, you also want to make sure that they have stable disease. So if you if you have someone who's actively kind of getting new areas of involvement and you try to um, do depigmentation, the unfortunate thing about these, some of these patients is they tend to be very labile and they may spontaneously repigment. So I like to have our patients to have stable disease, no areas of um, or no area, no new areas of involvement for a lot, at least a year prior to even thinking about the option of depigmentation. Um, I also sometimes will have patients see a psychologist because the one thing about depigmentation, unlike unlike a lot of the other treatments that we're thinking of, is that it's permanent. Um, and so, and in particular, in your skin of color patients, you want to think about the fact that there are a lot of psychosocial issues that are associated with depigmenting someone permanently. Um, and so, um, I make sure that I have very real discussions about that if we just um, choose. To uh, pursue that, um, the treatment that you do is 20% monobenzone of ether. It has to be compounded by a compounding pharmacy, um, and I do set realistic um, expectations. Um, when we say it's permanent, it is permanent, but patients will sometimes have areas of spontaneous repigmentation, so they may require continued treatment. They may have to, you know, air, when areas come back, they need to, re- they may need to retreat those areas that occur. Um, so the general kind of recommendation or, treat or kind of regimen that I do is I have them do it on a test spot for about t- uh, two to three months, and we gauge for a response. If they respond well, then they can start treating the rest of their body. Um, and if after two months they aren't getting enough um, uh, response, I add in a topical retinoid, so a tr- like a, tr- a tretinoin or tazerac, along with the monobenzone to increase the um, It's to increase the efficacy. Um, Face responds much better than other body parts. Um, And as I said before, you may have some areas that will spontaneously repigment, but um, they can always use that medication again to depigment those areas. And of course, whenever you depigment the areas in any patient who has vitiligo, you wanna make sure that they're practicing strict photo protection. Um, we talked about briefly this morning JAK kinase inhibitors. So JAK kinase inhibitors are, again, n- the new kid on the block about, for treating um, vitiligo. Um, you can use them topically or orally. When using um, or- the oral treatment, I usually do tofacitinib, and the treatment is 5 milligrams twice a day. Now, as far as kind of what to do before um, starting to use these medications, you do want to do kind of baseline, ex- uh, baseline um a lab test, so you're going to do LFTs, you're going to check your quant gold, your CBC, your CMP, and your CM lipids. And I usually do that at baseline, one month, th- and then every three months every um, thereafter. Um, and the main side effects of the medication are this increased risk of malignancy, increased risk of infection, um, and occasionally you can have increases in um, cholesterol and triglycerides in this patients, which is why you um, at uh, Kind of monitor that with the lab monitoring. Um, as far as cost, I know somebody asked me about this before and asked about compounding. If you decide to do the topical version, it does have to be sent to a compounding pharmacy. Um, it is not always covered by insurance. Um, there are some pharmacies that are cheaper. I, we can talk about that in the mingle, mingle Zone if you want some of those recommendations. Um, the main thing for uh, JAK kinase inhibitors in vitiligo is that it's not um, once the patients discontinue the medication, most of the time the skin depigments again. So it's something that has to be done continuously. Um, we briefly talked about in the last talk that um, there at least, a, is at least one study that suggests that adding phototherapy on to using a JAK kinase inhibitor can be helpful in kind of maintaining that um, repigmentation of the skin. So that may be something to consider if you um, decide to use this medication application. So switching gears to melasma, again, we see a lot of melasma patients and usually these um, patients are pretty frustrating because we don't have great treatments for melasma for a lot of our patients. So clinically, what you see are these symmetric hyperpigmented patches, typically on sun-exposed areas, on the forehead, the cheeks, um, but occasionally off that area. We do see it more commonly in women than we do men and that's um, usually because of hormonal influences, whether it's birth control or pregnancy um, and there is an increase Um, prevalence in darker skin populations. And so you kind of see this. I'm sure that many of us have seen this multiple times in our clinics. And you can see, again, that kind of reticulate hyperpigmentation in those areas. So um, my number one pearl for uh, melasma and for any type of hyperpigmentation in um, in any skin type, but particular skin of color patients, is that photo protection is treatment. I recommend sunscreen, and that's the first thing that I'm recommending to patients when they come in before I'm even talking about other um, methods of treating it. Um, And when we talk about melasma specifically, visible light can actually make melasma worse. So you want to make sure that you're using um, physical sunblock. Um, And so we're talking about um, some blocks with titanium um, dioxide, iron oxide, or zinc oxide, um, which they, because, and that's because these are effective against visible light, whereas um, chemical sunscreens are not. Now, somebody asked a question earlier about this idea of darker skin patients and using physical blockers and getting that kind of ghostly cast where you kind of get that gray cast because that's what a physical kind of sunblock does um there are very expensive options that um that don't have as much of a cast which which as i said we can talk about in the mingle zone but what i do for general people because i use a physical blocker is that i actually wipe off the excess with a towel so i put it on and then i let it sit for a minute and then i kind of dab it and then kind of rub it in again and that usually takes away most of that gray cast um for a patient so that's one trick that you can use So treatment, there are a number of other treatments in addition to some protection that people use. Um, Hydroquinone is considered the gold um, gold standard. Um, And then there's kind of like this Kligman's formula or Triluma where you use hydroquinone along with a topical retinoid and a topical steroid. Um, I have highlighted here kojic acid, cysteamine, and oral tranexamic acid because we're gonna talk about those because those are kind of like the newest treatments that have um, kind of come up as options for treatment of melasma. So hydroquinone is considered the gold standard and it has been considered the gold standard for treatment of hyperpigmentation of many causes. Um, You can get it over-the-counter, as we all know, in the 2% concentration. Um, The prescription um, concentration is 4%, although you can get it compounded as a 6%, 6%, 8%, 6%, 8%, or 10% concentration. Um, many patients who get this may also get it outside, um, you know, kind of in different um, African stores or like bodegas and the like. Um, and the thing to be, you know, what that I always um, caution patients against doing that is that a lot of these uh, lightning creams that are found in some of these stores that are brought in from other countries are unregulated. So the strengths may vary. So sometimes you'll have 3%, but sometimes you'll have 7 to 10% hydroquinone in these products. And the higher you go, the um, concentration of hydroquinone, the more likely you are to have some side effects um, or, or undesired effects from using it. So one of these um, undesired effects is exogenous ochronosis. Um, and I think that this is one of the things that everybody is afraid of. When they're using hydroquinone, they're afraid that if they use it for too long, um, they're going to ha- their patients are going to develop this. But um, honestly, this is not a very common effect. I will say that in the 10 years or so that I've been practicing, I've, not had any- I've had one patient who came in with exogenous ochronosis. And that was because she was using a product that she found that she was getting from a different country. Um, So when you look at the literature, looking at um, use of 4% hydroquinone, the likelihood of um, developing um, exogenous oquinosis is actually fairly low. In particular, if you limit the amount of time that patients use it. So I usually have patients use hydroquinone for no longer than a year on any one given area. The other recommendation that I give to patients is that if it's not working after six months... It's probably not going to work, so there's no there's no really good utility to kind of continuing to use, use hydroquinone for longer periods of time. For exogenous ochronosis specifically, what you're going to see are these blue black kind of um, uh, macules um, in areas where you're where the patient is using the hydroquinone. Um, the unfortunate thing about exogenous ochronosis is that it's very difficult to treat. So there aren't great um, you can do lasers, um, but once this happens, it's not something that is easily reversible. Um, as I said for traditional hydroquinone um, usually what I recommend patients do is in addition to sunscreen is using it twice a day for about six to twelve months um, and as I said you can also um, use this with a topical retinoid one thing that I also will recommend for patients is that they apply it with a Q-tip or something more focal because what will be more notable in darker skin patients is if they're very kind of, if they're just using their fingers to kind of apply it is that they'll get this halo of hypopigmentation on the normal skin that they're getting the cream on so I'm very, I, you know, I tell patients that they have to be very focal about applying it just to dark to the dark areas of involvement. So kind of the new kids on the block when it comes to treatment of melasma, um, one of these things is kojic acid. So kojic acid is uh, produced by aspergillus fungi and it it essentially chelates the the copper and tyrosinase. Um, So they've done a couple of studies. Um, One study looked at comparing kojic acid alone um, to hydroquinone and they actually found that um, hydroquinone was a better uh, treatment as far as uh, for uh, melasma. However, there was another study where they looked at combining kojic acid with hydroquinone and found that that was better than hydroquinone alone. Um, so one of the new things that people have been doing recently is actually compounding kojic acid with hydroquinone to get a better effect or to get it kind of a potentiated effect. Uh, again, it's not something that you can get commercially. You do have to get it from a compounding pharmacy, but oftentimes hydroquinone isn't covered by ins- um, insurance anyway. So it's oftentimes in the same range where you're paying about $80 from a compounding um, pharmacy. And I've had a couple of patients who've had a little bit more success with adding this in. Um, tranexamic acid, again, is another kind of um, new kind of uh, treatment for melasma. Um, it's traditionally used for excessive menstrual bleeding, and then it's a plasmin inhibitor. Um, but there have been a number of studies now that suggest that it can be very helpful um, in severe melasma. Um, and so there was a one study that where they looked at 500 patients who were using 750 milligrams a day, um, and they used it for a treatment duration of about four months. Um, and what they found is that 90% of patients, or nearly 90% of patients who use this, actually had improvement, although there was a relapse rate of about 28%. Um, So the main reason why people do not use do not use tranexamic acid. Is this kind of the contraindications and this risk of clot? Um, and so, one of the things, if you're choo- if you're going to choose to use this medication, um, the typical dosing is 250 milligrams twice daily. Um, but you want to make sure that you're screening for any history of clot. So, do they have a personal history of clot? Do they have a family history of clotting or clotting disorders? Um, because those would, um, patients would be contraindicated um, for using this medication. However, For patients who don't have any of those risk factors, it can be a great treatment, and we will go back. And so here are just some some, um, clinical pictures for some patients who have used this uh, medication um, and have had some good results. I think I went over everything there. So cysteamine is the last kind of new treatment that's available for um, melasma. So cysteamine is this, um, it contains cysteamine hydrochloride, um, and it inhibits melanin um, synthesis by inhibition of tyrosinase. most of these medications do. Um, it has been around for decades, but it hasn't been used traditionally for melasma because of the smell. So it has a very strong sulfuric um, um, odor, but recently some of the manufacturers have been able to come up with a new formulation so that it's not as uh, offensive. Um, and so there was one study where they looked at 50 patients who, um, that, that used um for the treatment of melasma, and they found significantly decreased um, uh, Massey scores. So, the great thing about cystamine is that it does not require a prescription. You can find it, I mean, patients can find it online. Um, It is not cheap. Um, It's about $100 um, to $100 to $120 for the different formulations that I've found online. Um, But again, it's something, it's another option that can be very effective. Um, And so the directions are generally that you apply it just to the areas of hyperpigmentation um, and you do kind of, you do this um, graduated contact time where you apply it once daily for about 15 minutes and then you wash wash the face and apply a moisturizing cream. And that's because the main side effect of this medication is that it can cause some redness and irritation. So you basically have to um, uh, increase tolerance in these patients. So after that hour of uh, 15 minutes, you put that, you you wash the face and you use a moisturizing cream. After six weeks of application, you gradually kind of increase the contact time. So you can go to 30 minutes. 45 minutes, an hour, however long the patient's able to tolerate it over time. Um, it takes about six weeks to start to see the reduction in pigmentation, um, but they say that optimal results may be obtained after about 12 weeks. Um, the the main thing about this as well is that you have to continue to use this indefinitely to kind of maintain those effects. So usually after a patient have reached the kind of desired endpoint or whatever endpoint they reach, you have the patient use it two times a week to kind of maintain that um, Result. The side effects, as I talked about earlier, are the irritation um, that can occur with the medication and dryness. So, using a moisturizer, a moisturizer after um, after stopping the medica- or me, after applying the medication is uh, important. And contraindications include pregnancy and lactation because there are no. This is not FDA approved. There are no studies that have been done on it, so that is one of the main contraindications. And then we have some pictures, so you can see in this um, report, you have a patient who was using it, and then you can see the significant kind of melasma that was there um, initially, and now, I think this is after about four months of treatment, uh, you can see the improvement in that patient. This is another patient. So this was a patient who actually failed multiple treatments, hydroquinone, lasers, um, and, and trinexamic acid, actually, who used the cysteamine and actually had pretty um, significant um, improvement in, their, in her hyperpigmentation as well. So it's just something else to kind of think about, in particular in these patients um, whom tend to be frustrating when you don't, fr- frustrating for both them and for us, um, when you don't really have that many great options, something else just to, uh, to add to your armamentarium. And that's it. So I will take questions in the back if you have any. Thank you for having me. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.